Welcome to the Kickstarter Journeys podcast brought to you by Fundamental Games. Each episode will provide you with some insight and opinions about successfully funded Kickstarter projects from the creators themselves. Here's your host, Wes Woodbury, ready to learn about another successful journey from the popular crowdfunding platform. Enjoy! Hello everybody and welcome to another Kickstarter journey. Today we have Sam, the cultist from Nebraska, here to present to us some of his Kickstarter findings from Cult of the Deep. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm doing really well. Good. It's nice and cold in Nebraska, just like it was here. I can understand why you might, might want to hide out in your basement and start a cult. Pretty cool. <laughs> well, as long as we have Kool-Aid, it'll be fine. Yeah. Right on. So uh, your game, Cult of the Deep, is actually, uh, at the time that I make this live it should still be live and that is $28,000 raised with uh, 15 days to go it might be uh, 10 days to go by the time this airs and you've had almost 500 backers so first of all congratulations on your success this is the first full project for you and you um, are breaking numbers that many people uh, can barely think about let alone achieve so congratulations oh thank you I I appreciate that it's overwhelming sometimes (laughs) yeah (laughs) This is a uh, hidden trader game, I believe, yeah, but it involves some dice and different mechanics that you don't traditionally see in hidden trader games. So I kind of like how you presented that. And I had the opportunity to play this plus create a digital version when you were in the early concepts before the art became as fantastic as it is. So it's been awesome to see it develop. Oh, man, I remember the original artwork and the my or graphic design that I did. It was awful. Seeing it now is like so much better than what it was. It's really good. It's got to start somewhere. It transforms, and you guys really did make it shine. So maybe tell us about uh, how you discovered Kickstarter and how you decided to throw a Hidden Trader game on there. Well, Kickstarter has always been something that I've always been a fan of because I'm a miniatures fiend, and cool mini or not, was you see them all the time at all the miniature conventions. And once, you know, I kind of saw it and kind of got it into it a little bit, some of my first backings and stuff, was, it was really kind of exciting. I like Kickstarter quite a bit. Then we were kicking around the idea of creating a game, and we've made a few games that never published or anything, um, pretty bad games overall. But then we <laughs> finally created one that was good, and so we started developing it more and more, and it, we got a lot of great feedback from people, um, people who we trust to be honest, and as well as people we didn't necessarily know that well. They're like, this is a good game. This is fun. Um, so we've kind of kicked it off, and you know, let's, let's make a go at it. And after looking at it, I was like, well, people are not looking for social games to buy or to publish. So I guess that kind of leaves us do our own thing. And we got a lot of strange looks at first um, from people about our game because of kind of where it fits and where it sits. But so we made it and we had a lot of fun and it's a great game. And we've busted out on numerous game nights because even people who played it a number of times still want to play it. So we're super excited. Super excited about it. Right on. Well, it's good to see. And so as you, um, you've you followed some projects, you've backed some projects on Kickstarter, making your own has its own trials and tribulations. Uh, <laughs> as you're trying to develop kind of the budget or the plan for it, what do you think was the biggest thing you had to consider when you were deciding how to create this game? Oh, the biggest thing? Oh, man. So there's so many things to consider looking back on it that I wish I would have done a few things more. But the the I, the biggest thing you're to, to, to tackle is how much am I going to spend on this thing? 
and that's going to be different for every person. Yeah. Uh, how much can you can you actually spend? Because the one thing um, you should not do is bank on. I see now, like I said, like you see all these numbers go up, but there are so many things with manufacturing and artwork and Kickstarter takes a piece, Stripe takes a piece, uh, Pledge, like all these different things take little pieces out of the pie, and eventually you're not left the whole lot sometimes. So banking on yeah. Kickstarter to get your money back, especially for your first few games, is probably not where you want to go with it. You want to make sure that you're in a reasonable spot that no matter what, you're going to be okay. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to balance in there. I, mean, I found a lot of hidden costs as I developed my first couple of games and um, definitely didn't make any profit off of them. I barely broke even on some, and it's because you really don't see everything until you've been through it unless you have the time to do all the research, which most of us that get into game design love the concept of game design more than we love the concept of business. So uh, it's an interesting experience. Um, now, you guys with, I mean, you guys crushed your funding goal, which is fantastic, and there's always expectations for making a product better through stretch goals and, and hidden objectives. How did you guys approach that? Well, um, we just in case, uh, Andrew Lowen always talks about planning for success and failure. And I'm a huge proponent of that idea. So we planned for uh, a potential failure, like what happens if we don't fund by a certain time. And, you know, we, we were thinking, like, you know, if we don't fund in like 15, 20 days, and we're not. That's that's a big issue there. We're gonna figure out whether we're gonna do that or not, or what. We also planned on like barely funding and some different stretch goals, and we actually went for higher. And the biggest thing we were looking for is number one, we wanted to bring some new aspects to the game, um, which for us means new artwork and some new ideas, which I think is great for the replayability of the game, as well as just you know for the longevity of the game in general. And then the other thing we were looking for is I never really like the stretch goals or like, oh, congratulations, you your your cover of your box now has, you know, UV spotting. And like that's it. Like, wait, hey, we raised four thousand more dollars and that's all you're giving us, which I see yeah. now why you do do that. But <laughs> it always felt bad as a backer um, because it's just like, oh, man, I'm not really excited about the stretch goal. I don't care. And so. What we try to do is, if we're going to do something like that, we're going to pull it together um, with a few other things, too, so it's not by itself. So that's what we did with a couple of our tiers that we've actually already unlocked. Is So like we made the token sticker, but we also made the acrylic token sticker, and we added UV spotting on the tokens, as well as the altar board. So we added it in multiple areas, and we upgraded multiple things. It felt, it felt like that would be more impactful when you do your stretch goal. So Awesome. Yeah, and you guys have unlocked a couple. I think the box upgrade is actually your next one, which is right around the corner. I, I'm pretty sure you're going to have to budget for that. <laughs> well, so, so that's one that's kind of cool because that's another one, right? Well, it's like, well, we're going to emboss the title, but then we're going to add the spotting to it. But then we're going to add, like, an inside color to the box so to, to kind of spruce up a bit. Then we're also adding a sigil card as well. So you'll also get a new once per game power that you can that can be mixed into the game. So we're trying to add just more than one thing if we can um, to kind of bundle things together. Yeah. 
no, it's a good approach, and uh, I wish you all the best with that. I, I think you are going to have to plan for a few more of those before this campaign ends, if it follows the, that traditional curve. That's, now, that's you guys, <laughs> Yeah. I know I was always excited when I could actually afford to pay for the art for a new character for a game, because it's not that I didn't have the idea of the character. It's that you got to watch your money. you got to watch those fine lines, and people may not think art costs much, but if you want good art, it definitely does. Oh, art varies dramatically, and not trying to down any of the games, but there's different levels of art for sure. Yeah. And so paying for a good artist is, is a, just a big difference. Um, I agree wholeheartedly. So uh, I love Cold in the Deep, and it's been a dream to work on the artwork and art direction for this thing. Um, but yeah, not cheap. Yeah. Very good. Another another way that you keep people's attention or get people's attention to begin with is through video content and social media and content creators. And you guys had quite a bit. I mean, you had a Dice Tower How to Play. You've got some gameplay examples from Dead or Alive and from um, Who's This Game Talk Network and from Unfiltered Gamer. So all that stuff kind of takes time and money to give them prototypes and in some cases it's paid previews. What did you find was your experience for the kind of the best bang for your buck or return on investment for this type of thing? Uh, so for me, the best thing that I think we did was we tried to diversify content. So we wanted to make sure we had a how to play. We also wanted to make sure we had a kind of like every, like a preview um, like a paid preview, like Unfiltered Gamer does a good job. Plus, he does a live playthrough on his channel, which we wanted, as well as some other live playthroughs. So we wanted a variety of content besides just the, the typical preview review formula. We wanted some other stuff people could sink their teeth into. And so that's, I think that I think has worked out for us in that regard. Um, I don't think you can ever bank on just one um, person visually to, to cover stuff because... We've also gotten into like the Tantrum House block video. We also yeah. contacted King of Average. Um, he does a lot of more miniature stuff, but he also does a rundown for the month of Kickstarters, and we got into his channel. We also got into um, Shelf Clutter on Reddit. Oh, wow. Um, Getting on Reddit for anything is, is a chore in itself. Well, there's a guy who does Kickstarter specifically, and yeah. he's a super nice dude. Um, highly recommend, you know, if you got a Kickstarter, talk to the guy, see what he's going to do. He likes to do giveaways and stuff too. So if you're totally willing to do that, he's, he's up for it. Super nice guy. Um, so we got that one. We also got, and I think I know that we've kind of been doing our job a little bit is when we started getting picked up from people you have no clue about. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you know, like you start like, yes, <laughs> word of mouth is working. It's um, important. So it absolutely is. Well, you don't know where to find, like some people you don't even know where they come from. And there's, there's too many outlets of information in our world of board games and you can't cover them all. It's, you just can't. And so it's just, it's nice to see people come out of the woodwork and to find stuff and to work with your, with your content. And it's been, it's been really nice. Right on. Now, as you um, build up your funding, some of the funding, that you get is more than just a base game. It involves some add-ins and some all-ins. And you guys did something that uh, some content creators are scared of, and that's 
doing specialized tokens, like you've got metal coins or a leather dice tray or a play mat. What was your approach on that? Is it all done through the same manufacturer? Or are you going through different outlets to source this stuff after the fact? So we're for this time around, we're using our manufacturer to do a lot of the sourcing because one of the things you learn very quickly when you're dealing with, and you don't sometimes realize it at first, when you're working with manufacturers, um, they don't actually do a lot of this stuff. They do like maybe a component of it. Like they may do like the printing on paper and cardboard. So they'll do your cards and your boards. But like when it comes to like the cubes or the trays or anything else, they'll outsource that stuff. Yeah. And they'll they'll bring it in. And so once I found that out, I'm like, okay, well let's 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 shop around. What do you guys got? What do you guys got? What do you have available? And then it's more talking to them and be like, well, we could do this dice tray. But then you got to ask them, okay, if we do this dice tray, can we get it? What's your common size? Like, what can you do? And so that's the ones that we've been trying to do is get into sizes and things that are more common so they don't have to special order it. Because when you have to special order it, it all increases the cost, but it also makes it more difficult to get in sometimes. So we've been working with our manufacturer to try and get good sizes that are doable. Yeah, that's some great feedback is finding through them what is your lowest cost that still has good value just based on the commonality of it instead of getting those, like you said, customized versions or special sizes that will cost more. I like that. Now, that's one thing you got to be careful of, though, and you probably can test this. Like, culturally, they don't necessarily tell you that stuff. <laughs> no. They, 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 they like, oh, that's what you want? We'll do it that way. And they'll, they'll just do it. And you're like – no, I, I need to know, is this the best way or is there another way? And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, like this is what is normally done. This is what's easy access. You're like, oh, okay, good. Did I need to change? Because when you tell them what you want, they'll just take it and run with it. And you need to sometimes um, let them know, I want what's best for this. Like what is easy to get access? What is available? Like don't just take what I tell you. Like tell me what, what I really need sometimes. Yeah, like a 10 millimeter dice versus it's a standard 16 millimeter dice could have a quite a difference in cost when you multiply it by a thousand or two thousand titles. Uh huh. And you don't realize that, or um, like when you do dice, when you do a lot of dice, you're like, well, okay, I I want this to be um, engraved. Well, if you say engraved, they're like, okay, we'll do the engraving. They'll give you an engraving cost. But yeah. little you know, if you produce enough, doing a mold's easier. And can actually, yeah, if you do enough copies, it's cheaper. For cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but like, but you got to ask, but you don't know to ask those questions because you're, you're new to the to business, right? So you don't know. So you really have to try and like ask questions and really explore uh, what's happening. And then that's, that's, that's your best way to get stuff um, done and to see what's available and to do things. Yeah, and some manufacturers are much better at that than others. I've worked with a couple of different ones, and if you can find the right person at the right company that's willing to explore that with you, then um, that that's a gold mine in itself. But then you have the opposite problem where you tell them what you want, and then they say, no, 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 you want this. And I'm like, no, I actually really don't want that. I want this specific thing. And then they keep telling you no, and then you're like, really difficult. <laughs> so you have the opposite problem. Well, that can happen to you, yeah.
Cool, Sam. So thanks for your outlook on components. Maybe, you know, the components of building your game was quite a few different people. I mean, I talked to you the most about it, but when I look at your page, you've got Ed Stockton, you've got Liam Peters, David Lee, Maura Elko, Charles Chuck Walton II, Imagineer Studio, Sam Hillier, Dawnbreaker Dice, Dan Wells. My goodness, all kinds of people. What is it like to work on such a, a team and how did you put all this together? Well, so, like, when you have your team, you have, like, different tiers, I guess, when it comes to when you're an indie creator. Because there's no way all of those people are on my payroll, you know, at the <laughs> company. Um, but those are all major contributors that and people that we worked with. So, like, Sam Hillier with editing, um, he's one that we'll have to re-engage with because we, we made an initial rule book. That was one of our things we really wanted. Like, we wanted a rule book, so we worked with them early. But then... There's kind of been a break, and we'll work with him again once we finish the Kickstarter. Uh, so in terms of, like, different pieces, um, like Imagineer Studio did a lot of the early work for us. They also created our logos, uh, and they really helped set up the look of the game and the symbology and everything. Then David Lee has taken, like, the reins and taken everything else and put everything together. And so he's the one that's kind of finalized everything. He does the Kickstarter page. That's kind of his baby. Um, which he did, he did a great job. Uh, and so all these different uh, people, Dan Wells, uh, he's a, he's an author in his own right. Uh, he does his own thing. He was a dream to come true. Cause I, that's one of my bucket list of things was to get him to do a short story or a yeah. novel. And, uh, he did it and I was so excited and it's a good story too. So if you ever want a chance to read it, we have the first few parts out on the website. So good. That's the one, that one's called A Bountiful Harvest. Is that the one? Yep. Oh, nice. man. It's, I, I love that. It's so good. I love it. <laughs> and then uh, my brother, though, his the one that I work with the most because, well, we're brothers and we're partners in the business. And so he he was my game developer. I was a designer and kind of that, but he's kind of my kind of game developer. So he helped me to make sure I was on schedule making sure where everything got where we're supposed to go, keeping me responsible. Um, he also helped make sure budgets where they're supposed to be. So he's been a huge, huge help in that, plus play testing and everything else. That's fantastic. And you put a couple, actually I'm looking at your site now. Um, you mentioned Gabe Barrett in one of your references there, and you actually put him as a picture on the librarian <laughs> card. I didn't like that, so I was just scrolling through. That's very nice. Uh, uh, Gabe Barrett does the Board Game Design Lab website and Facebook group and podcast and creates some wonderful content, so it's just really cool that you incorporated him into your game. Well, so we did, we, we, did, we worked at two people into the game, um, specifically, Gabe Barrett and Mandy Pursley. Uh, Gabe, so... When I was working through Cult of the Deep initially, after a while, um, there was a time where I got frustrated because I had finally taken it to a protospiel. And I'm like, all right, here's the game. And it got destroyed in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. certain people were really like it, but a lot of people were just like, no, this game is terrible. Now, I wrote a whole blog about this um, and how I took that feedback and I was really frustrated um, and it was a kind of a dark time because I, I was really looking forward to it and a lot of people I look up to um, locally and it just got you know destroyed but after Gabe Barrett and all of his information was super helpful and like okay well what can I do 
what am I doing here? What am I, what am I looking forward to doing stuff? A lot of his material he has available and his podcast really helped, you know, guide the way as well as, um, so that's why he's the librarian. He's the keeper of knowledge. Very nice. He's very wise and old. No, I love it. And you then, guys uh, also went to, I'm sorry, go ahead. All right. That was a, just a real quick call out to Mandy personally. So she is actually a amputee and a cosplayer. So she sews all of her own stuff, even though she only has one arm. And so she was super, super awesome and inspiring because of what she did. And she was just super positive. And so she really helped me through a dark time with this whole game. And so in honor, we put her into the game as well. Yeah, that's very cool with the kind of magical uh, mechanical arm showing on the image that I can see here. Yeah, so she's uh, the sorceress. And little do we know that she loves fireball so much, so that's her ability in the game pretty much. So it kind of worked out. Yeah. Beautiful. Right on. And I see on here you've got a backer kit stamp as well. So some people use these pledge managers, some don't. What was uh, kind of your decision point on whether to use a pledge manager that's like that or not? I think we thought about it for like five minutes and then it was like, yeah, pleasure manager. There's no other way. We thought about doing it ourselves for a moment, but the ability of pledge manager to handle that information, to deal with the getting the addresses and all the the stuff that we're going to run into. I think that was where you're like, you you can tell me more about this than than I can because you've actually done it a few times. Yeah. Yeah, like what's, no, they, they take their cut as well, but I think what they take is well worth what they give back. I mean, I haven't used one yet, but I am considering using one for my next project just because of all the headaches you get in trying to manage your own. Oh, pledges. so you haven't used a pledge manager? I have only used my own resources through Kickstarter themselves or GameFound. So, but I, I'm definitely considering it for the next project because as you scale up and get more backers, the challenges behind running it yourself kind of intensify. Oh, I, I want to know more about this. Maybe I'll interview you. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we'll, we'll talk offline. We can talk about uh, game. Okay, well, I have well, their site, and they give you all kinds of wonderful information. So if you ever do want to self-manage your own campaign, it is possible, but it's very time-intensive, and you have to kind of be the middleman between getting all of the information they give you to your fulfillment partners. So, but no, uh, backer kit. I've heard about from a number of people where you definitely have to pay a percentage or a amount per game, but the amount you pay is worth what you get out of it from what I've heard. Do they offer uh, advertising as well, or is that? Yes, they do that? offer advertising. That's one of their big things they like to do. Yeah. Um, so to uh, which word on that? Um, plan out your mar. If you have your margins, stick to them. Don't overdo it. That's that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> It's really easy to say, yeah, put more money into Facebook, and then you realize, hey, I didn't get any backers out of that last week. That's not good. <laughs> that is actually the good thing about BackerKit is they actually have – they're able to do some things to track backers yep. when they they back. And so you can find out what the ROA or return on ad spend is. So if I spend X amount of dollars, how much am I getting in return in revenue? Now they can't tell you what your what your profit margin is or your your markup because that has to do with your own stuff, but yeah. they'll they'll give you how much they they did, um, and that's been very helpful for us on planning our ad strategy and our marketing. That's awesome, awesome, awesome. 
All right. Well, maybe as we start to wrap up here, uh, one thing I always like to know is, especially first-time creators, I mean, you, you went into this process kind of uh, doing some research and thinking you knew what you're going into as you're coming to the middle of your campaign or the, the slump before you hit the last peak. Uh, what is something that you experienced that you never read or thought would happen to you? Um, what will go wrong will go wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's going to happen. I mean, I didn't think everything would go wrong, but so many things went wrong before launch and not like, like, Oh no, but like the pandemic really hit us hard. Yeah. Cause so we're a social game. That's four to eight <laughs> players. Right. <laughs> so, and our big push was for conventions because social deduction games tend to do well at conventions um, I used to run conventions. We had a space at Gen Con. We had a space in Origins, which Origins canceled for, for good reasons. Um, and so we had, like, multiple conventions and backups. Like, we had comic, Planet Comic Con in Kansas City. Like, we had multiple things ready to go. And then it all came crashing down. <laughs> yeah. Which made it much more difficult to do stuff online. But that's where, like good planning has saved us. So even if you have things that fail or things that go wrong, whether it's that, whether it's an artist, which we didn't have that issue. Thank heavens. Liam Peters is a total boss. Love that guy. Um, <laughs> whatever may be the situation, having a, a good plan helps you so much through all this stuff, as well as having a mentor is, is great. If you can find someone who can kind of take you under their wing a little bit, um, you know, the Borgen Design Lab is a great place to find people like that. You did that to us for a little bit on Tabletop Simulator, so thank you for that. But also uh, Rachel Blasky, um, who is local to us, she um, she founded 524 or such, Yeah, I spoke with her on one of the episodes about her mint mm -hmm. control. Yeah. Yeah, so she's, uh, she's done it a few times, and... So she is a great resource. She's local to me. So she, she's been wonderful to talk to. And she's like, just so you know, all these terrible things are going to happen uh, yeah. in the first hour. I'm like, first hour? What do you mean? And <laughs> I wasn't ready. <laughs> it's a good thing, though. It's not a terrible as another thing. The whole world comes crashing down. There's just there's a lot to do when you launch. Yeah. And they, don't allow, you to, and they don't allow you to prep for it, really. No, just, like you can't pre-fill in your Q and or your FAQs. You, you can't pre-assign um, individual um, what refer, is it referral links or referral tags, links, which make a big difference for certain content creators. And yeah, there's a lot of things that you can't do till the morning of. And then you you can pre-plan your updates and stuff, but you really need them tailored to your funding results. So in a way, you can plan, but you can't at the same time. Like it's. It's, it's, a, it's a little frustrating with Kickstarter. I love Kickstarter, but also it's frustrating. And the page, the actual Kickstarter page program. Oh, yeah, it, creating the page is a pain, yeah. It's a pain in the butt. Yeah. I'm, yep, glad we, I'm glad we... It works smooth, but there's quite a few times where you upload five times and realize it still hasn't uploaded or you get the circle of death for 10 minutes. It depends well, on your internet speed and stuff, too, but they've got their own quirks. But also the auto-spacing... Yeah. Do you know how frustrating that is? 
it is. Uh, uh, you mentioned before we were talking about how much you want space, so I can see how that might be particularly disturbing to you. I mean, it bothers me too, but then I realize that once it goes live, all those spaces disappear automatically. It's just when you're looking at it in your preview page, you're like, ah, oh, why won't this space go away? Well, even then we do preview, and it's like, wait, why is there so much white space? And it's like, oh, well. so that's why we like, you have to take, having a graphic designer who's done Kickstarter before is awesome. That is a one thing I would highly recommend is find someone who's done a Kickstarter before and who is familiar with the workings of it. Yeah. yeah I I'd recommend that. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe uh, outside of your Kickstarter journey, what, like what is it that you guys in your family do or your friends do that you enjoy for board games? Like what got you into this hobby for tabletop gaming? Well, tabletop gaming has kind of always, to a certain extent, been my family. Uh, we used to move around a lot when I was a kid, and it's me and my five brothers. Or we're, we are five brothers. We have four other brothers. And so... Four brothers, part of a cult. Is that what this is all about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we started a cult when we were young, and yeah. been ever since. But so, like, when you move around a lot, you don't necessarily get a chance to find new friends a whole lot, because then, like, within a year or two, you're moving again, so... You just never really like, you know, put down roots as well as you'd like. And so we always had each other. So that's what we did was we played board games. I mean, we started with like Battle Masters and Hero Quest uh, and that kind of stuff. But and then we really got heavy into Warhammer. We're, we're big miniature players by trade. But uh, as I've gotten older, um, we play just playing tabletop games like after miniature games or during different times. Or different, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there. And so we ended up playing that and having a lot of fun. We even created a game when I was younger called World War Toy. Awesome. It's where you take your toys and you measure them, which gives them stats and things and point values, and you can give them attacks and stuff. And you basically mark off your living room floor, you put your toys on the board, the floor, and then you, you, you use tape measures and you measure them out and do attacks and roll dice. It was a horrible game. It was fun. What? <laughs> I said that'll be the next game from BA Games. <laughs> I don't think that's been done before a lot. Everyone always that's been like a miniature game that doesn't require expensive miniatures, right? Just use what you got. Um, it's a good idea. No one, I don't think anyone's ever been able to do it well, sadly. Yeah. But. Maybe we will one day, just for fun. Very cool. Yeah, and do you guys have any plans after Cult of the Deep? Is there an expansion planned already, or do you have a different game that you kind of prepared to be your follow-up? I mean, we have a ton of ideas for Cult of the Deep. Um, I'm not sure if we'll direct follow-up into that. I mean, it depends on how well we do, I guess, and how we finish, and kind of what people want. Um, we have a few other ideas for games, but it's been on hold. I've been so focused on this Kickstarter and planning it, trying to plan ahead and be on top of everything. That I haven't really had much time for anything else, but once we, we get this thing, things calm down, we got a few game ideas and, or even uh, expansions for Cold of Deep that we'd like to explore for sure. Perfect. Well, Sam, it's been a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you about your Kickstarter journey and everything that kind of went into it. I think some of the people listening will, gather some advice and um, hopefully learn from it when they do their own creations and your campaign is not over yet so if anybody's listening to this and haven't heard or seen call to the deep uh, take a click on the link and check it out 
or if the Kickstarter is already over by the time you listen to it, I'm sure there'll be a follow-up late pledge option that most Kickstarters have. So um, again, wonderful talking to you, Sam. Enjoy life with the cult in Nebraska, and uh, <laughs> hope to hear from you outside of the call here. Come join us. It's negative 24 degrees Fahrenheit. Come. Uh, 